for trainers, collectives, and individuals that were looking for a program to follow that was chud-free or perhaps one that came directly from us. There is Liberation Martial Arts Online. Thanks to Jet Cloud, Kevin Wallace, Katie Anderson, and Richard Chan for signing up. You can sign up for Liberation Martial Arts Online through our website at southpawpod.com. This will also give you access to uncut versions of our shows without any breaks or interruptions. Plus, early access to our bonus shows, Fighters Brew, which is a recap show of the manga All Rounder Meguru, and SDS9, which recaps Star Trek Deep Space Nine. This is Sam. And this is Fight Study. This episode was sponsored by SH, Alejandro, Ronde J, Berkshire People's Gym, and New Guy. Become a sponsor and not only get a mention on every episode, but also a monthly training session with me. Sign up on Patreon. On this fight study, I brought on two special guests to talk about the main event for UFC 293, Adesanya vs. Strickland. First, we have a returning guest, MMA analyst Dan Tom. Dan, can you tell us a bit about yourself, how long you've been covering MMA, and where people can find your work? Um, basically, I've just been in martial arts since uh, some form since the early 90s, and uh, followed the traditional martial arts boom into the mixed martial arts boom. And, um, you know, I competed as an amateur, nothing crazy, got some concussions, which were fun. Uh, made me lose my corporate gig, but the blessing in disguise was it allowed me to find other ways to be involved with the sport, uh, like breaking things down, writing, writing about it. And, um, I guess I did that good enough to get some jobs and one job led to another, uh, to where now I do work for MMA junkie, which is part of USA today sports, which is cool, but it's also a part of Gannett, which is, you know, not the coolest. Um, I, and then I, you can also find, uh, betting analysis because not only you know a uh, mixed martial arts boom now we are in a betting boom for kind of all sports and a lot <laughs> of us kind of uh, have to go that way um just to make our livings despite what we may th- or may not think about the crowd <laughs> we're <laughs> writing for um and then of course you can find me i'm a great self-promoter and great uh a great at you know appeasing my audiences <laughs> as you can tell you can find that work at action network and um and i'm just happy to be here on quality podcasts like the southpaw pod it is one of the few mma podcasts i can listen to and uh, I'm just excited to talk with you, Sam, and, and the fantastic guests that you uh, lined up. And how many years have you been writing about MMA now? Um, officially, I think I just made eight years officially. Uh, 2015 is when I started. I think I, I, I have notebooks going back to maybe 2014 of matchups written in a similar format that you actually see now published on MMAJunkie.com. That was, that was my format that came from, uh, uh, you know, just, just hand scratch on a paper. And uh, yeah, I've been following that format since 2014 and then published first on my own website, which is still up and host my podcast, Protect Your Neck Podcast at MixedMartialAnalyst.com. And that launched in August. The first card I covered was Max Holloway uh, versus Charles Oliveira in Saskatoon, Canada. Next, we have Jason from MMAI. Jason, can you tell us a bit about yourself, how you got interested in MMA, your background and lens you bring to MMA? and about MMAI. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm very excited to, to follow Dan's. Um, so the first UFC fight I ever watched is a little over four years ago. It was uh, the actual first ever fight I watched was Masvidal versus Ben Askren. 
Um, I had just gotten a full-time job and I could afford things. And I saw Tiago Santos throwing some kicks on YouTube. And I was like, wow, I'm just going to buy that pay-per-view. Forgot that I did it and tuned in because uh, my brother said to me, oh, man, we, we bought that. And the first thing I tuned into was Masvidal Askren. And I was like, wow, after the knockout, it's like, wow, OK, that's what this sport's like. Uh, but what really got me into it was um, Tiago fighting through his torn knee. That that was something I, I'm a football fan, basketball fan, never seen anything like that. And I was trying to after that, I was just trying to figure out what what this sport was, because I was just amazed at, at seeing something like that. Um, my like martial arts background is is uh, I whenever someone asks me on YouTube, I always say that I was a subpar middle school wrestler that got you know spit up and chew it out before high school. Um, and that's accurate. <laughs> I had a sub 500 record. I had four pins and it was always against people that were uh, they didn't have someone at my weight class, but they had someone a weight class below me and I would just weight bully them. So those are my four wins. Uh, I've taken five Blue Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu classes. I injured myself in three out of those five. Um, and I am uh, a data scientist. So most of <laughs> most of what I bring to the table is uh, the lens with which I view it, I would say, is I am very bad practically, and I have a very weak body. But um, I understand data. I understand how to break things down into smaller pieces. And um, that has seemed to work to figure out how to learn about martial arts and uh, analyze it without actually being good at it. <laughs> but you also specialize in creating like learning models, right? Yeah. So what I do is uh, machine learning. Uh, I usually very basic forms of machine learning. Um, actually, the most advanced version of machine learning that uh, MMAI has used is word clouds, which is uh, much more advanced than you would think it is. Uh, we, we took all the people talking about, um, I don't remember what event it was, but all the Twitter posts about a specific event and made a word cloud of it. And that's actually a decent amount of uh, heavy lifting in terms of machine learning. But yeah, most of what I do is learning algorithms, um, not for like gambling, but more so in reverse. Um, my favorite one that I've done was on Mackenzie Dern, where we used a learning algorithm to kind of say, okay, um, where do you go? Like, where do you want Mackenzie to be to limit your chance of getting submitted by her? And actually, I don't remember the answer. I probably should have looked this up before I brought this up. But uh, but you could say, like, I think it was her bottom full guard and then her and top full mount were the two places that she has the lowest likelihood of submitting you just based on past uh, results. So um, I took that and then I watched the Amanda Hebos fight, which is one of the best fights for someone defending against Mackenzie Dern's submission offense, and then just kind of paired those numbers with what Amanda did sort of intuitively. Um, so I, I'll do learning models in that respect. And uh, most of the models are in that sort of direction. Uh, and, you know, to bring it back to 293, one of my favorite models we've made was about um, what happens when Sean Strickland fights other people because he ha uh, his, uh, his parrying ability and the way he smacks your punches out of the way, he has the highest uh, differential of expected strikes landed to uh, like in terms of what you would expect he would get hit with versus how many he actually does is the largest gulf of any fighter in UFC history because people just do not know how to land uh, at his face. So that, that one's another fun one fighters camps coaches do reach out to you right yes yes mostly fighters uh, especially after the gambling video um a lot of coaches don't want to talk to me and especially managers don't want to talk to me 
um, without naming names, like there is a certain management group that I've been a bit hard on and anyone that's very close with them is very against talking to me. Um, I, I actually, the fighters that talk to me the most are the fighters represented by that company. (laughs) Um, and I always, you know, tell them like, Hey, just so you know, the people that manage you do not like me, uh, you, you know, you should know that ahead of time. I'm always very clear about that. But yes, I mainly talk to fighters and I really try and keep it uh, on the level where um, I don't like to interject. Like if, you know, a fighter is, I don't want to tell them something that their coach is like telling them the opposite because, you know, I can do a little data and throw them in a report. Whereas another person's working with that with them eight hours a day. I don't like to get between that kind of stuff. But um, usually fighters are more independent in the way they coach. Well, I'm glad to have both Jason and Dan on the show. The fight just happened, and this is only Monday, so I know we didn't have much time to prepare for this conversation. But I think what makes Israel Adesanya versus Sean Strickland so interesting is that it wasn't like Matt Serra beating GSP, which if it was, there wouldn't really be much to talk about. But this was more like Cody Garbrandt beating Dominic Cruz winning nearly every moment of the fight, which is what makes this so shocking and worth breaking down. And I think regardless of whether we prepped or not, I'm sure we've all been thinking about this fight as soon as it happened. So let's first start with Dan. Dan, what was your initial reaction? And did you see this as a possibility? So I thought I was dreaming because I I actually... uh caught this caught this result late i was uh both kind of sleeping and then kind of having plans it was a let's just say it was a wild weekend for your boy (laughs) um so it was almost just like a dream state when i saw the result Uh, as far as the possibilities um uh, you know it's funny as a guy i usually like to whether i pick and or play the contrarian angle i'm usually good about laying out paths to victories um, for both fighters, right? And, and whatnot. And usually you should, I think, whether you're a pundit, analyst, uh, realist, just trying to look at a fight or look at a possibility to only give credence to one is probably not the healthiest, safest, uh, thing to go, go about. But I will say this, and I'm not trying to feather the bed as an excuse here or anything for me, and which is why I'm actually really glad. I'm really excited to, to hear Jason's talk because, you got the right person on, uh, Sam, and it's not it's, it's not me because the person that I, I I wanted to give most credit to for their analysis, both, uh, you know, especially just pre and and, and what we saw post is is the person we'll hear from here shortly, and Jason. Um, but as far as mine goes, I think I, I will just say this to not just again give myself an excuse, but I, I think this fa- falls for, fit for a lot of people here. Where a I have the weird one where I have that this bias where. Uh, I know known Eric Nixick as we say to each other. We've known each other since we were in the mailroom, right? He kind of he, he moved up to gym manager, uh, but not just managing the gym because he did that for a long time before he got into the eyes of coaching, right? And uh, you know he's obviously kind of found his groove there, not just coaching but cornering. Those are two different skills. Not everybody can do one. Uh, not everybody can do both. And I think he's proving that he can do both. Whereas I kind of went more the analysis route. And it's tough because Extreme Couture is such a super gym. I'm constantly always having to state my bias. And I used to like at first with Junkie, like go, um, I'm not going to make picks, you know, or, or give analysis. And they're like, well, can you at least give us analysis? Maybe you don't have to make a pick. He's like, I would just hate it, right? Whenever Misha Tate or whoever more popular Extreme Couture fighter of a previous era would fight. And 
um, eventually I just, you know, you, 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 especially with the success that we, we, we were talking about, and I just referenced with Nick sick and this kind of newer iteration, um, it, it becomes difficult if I want to collect the paycheck at the end of the day, I have to be able to put these biases aside and be able to do these things. And Eric, thankfully is really mature and we, we've traded notes back and forth and he never has ever taken it personal when I pick or this or that, or provide analysis going against. Because uh, he's a smart guy and he wants to know what those holes are. He wants to know what the criticisms are. So he knows what to work on. He knows what the perception is. Um, so that puts me in a lose-lose case. So even if I was here going, you know, I picked Strickland. I saw this happening. How much could you guys really take me seriously because of these biases? Like, well, that's kind of your boy. Of course you're going to pick. Yes. You know, and that's how most people do it. Uh, and of course, I do the less popular, the air quotes right way, the air quotes, even though I'm not a journalist, I find myself acting like more of a journalist than literally 95.7, you know, to 97% of the space, uh, which is not meant low bar to clear granted. But you know, I state my biases, I'm upfront, and I'm accountable. That alone makes, I guess, puts me in a in a, in a field above others, but don't get me wrong, folks. It's not a high horse uh, because my bank account and my opportunities, that does, does not help that when you're honest in this space. So now that that's out of the way, as far as this prediction, I feel like many of us, including myself, despite these biases, were sleeping on these possibilities. Now, people were in my own chat were, were reminding me going, Dan, you were one of the analysts out there that says jabs, Israel Adesanya does not like being jabbed, whether it's from the close stance, Anderson Silva, right, uh, matchup. Uh, or, you know, uh, uh, Pareda, uh, you know, uh, from the orthodox stance, the jabs, you know, these these things were there. And I guess I did cite these things. And yes, you know, uh, I guess I obviously I did credit the game plan and, and the uh, the things of Eric Nixick. Something else I note, noted is that a lot of people, you know, will uh, kind of broad brush Strickland as far as following his opponent. And I get what they're saying. But if you actually look and, and again, um, Jason does a great, th great job. If you go check out his YouTube video of kind of giving you visual to kind of the uh, short cliff notes of the Eric Nixick system and his emphasis on the geography, uh, geometry, if you will, of an octagon ring, circular cage structure, etc. And if you look in Strickland's last few fights, although he really puts it together and we'll talk about it for this fight. He has been showing these little incrementations where he's not just following. He has been making slight adjustments. And I noticed this because when I was writing, I made sure to say sometimes tends to follow because most analysts that are I, I, I love and will give credit above me will fall into that kind of, you know, and it's, and it's easy because this is the excuse that I was saying that I think we all can relate on. It's easy when you're, when you're beat, whether you're, you're covering it or you're doing a podcast, uh, when the UFC is doing a relentless schedule like they do, like we've come to know, like people like myself and Luke Thomas of the world have been trying to warn everybody this was going to happen. And now it's even to a new extent where I used to cringe on 11 to 12 fight uh, uh, card streaks of the UFC. We are amidst a 17 fight uh, card run for the UFC. That's not including slap, which I don't, I hate saying it, but that just, just to give you perspective uh, the ultimate fighter, which also ran, Dana White's contender series. Um, they're continuing under promotion of Asian things with the road to UFC. All these things were going down at the same time. And thankfully, I didn't have to cover all those things, although contender series is unfortunately part of my beat as well. But I only bring this up because you just see it, and I'm calling myself out as well. It's real easy to get lazy with our analysis, right? Um, and which is what which is so um, so much why someone like Jason and his analysis and his excellent work um just popped out and, and you really uh, should have seen it and, and need to go see it if you haven't already. But uh, I think a lot of us for that reason 
we're kind of sleeping on this possibility, you know, and you, you're, you're amongst this flow. You got this guy Strickland, you know, you Adesanya, all the, all the narrative. And I'm, even though I'm not one of those, it's like, Oh, he's greater than Anderson. That wasn't me. You won't catch me on those streets saying that, that being said, you've got these, these narratives are out there. Right. And they play into it. So sorry for the long answer, but I was guilty here of perhaps being in that massive wave. That's so easy to get caught up in. And Jason, Give me your initial reactions to the fight. And if this shocked you or if you thought the near minus 700 Strickland had a shot. Uh, I, I don't think that the, the betting lines were uh, effective at, at really measuring his opportunity. But um, one of the things I think that uh, I'm going to take credit for, but was not the intention of the video. I did not think Sean was going to win this fight. And it wasn't because of, um, you know, I think that. I don't think there's a, a coach in uh, also, I don't have the extreme couture uh, thing, so I can say whatever I want. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I don't think there's a coach in the UFC that has a better handle on what Israel can and cannot do the way that Eric Nixit can. Um, and that goes back. Um, my belief of that goes back a little while. Uh, one of the first fighters I ever worked with was Cyril Ghosn. And it was, um, I was working with Fernand Lopez, giving him some data, and this would have been for the Derek Lewis fight. Um, and so I had a, a pre-existing relationship. He and I would talk about the grappling training and those kinds of things. And um, when Cyril got did what happened with Francis, um, I, I, I had to go back and I started trying to figure out what it was I missed. Right, because I, I thought uh, that Cyril would have put up a better showing than he did against Francis, and I mean he was making really elementary mistakes on bottom, um, and I think that the the uh, rolling for the leg lock people overstate that. I think it was actually that Francis was going for the scissor sweep rather than, and then Cyril just kind of falling over. I just want to put that out there, but that <laughs> uh, I was studying for a video. Uh, I think it was the I can't remember when it came out. It might have been the Tuivasa fight. And I want to go through what Cyril did wrong. And so I was doing a lot of analysis on just little basic things. And when I was watching, I was watching for Cyril and I start noticing Francis doing all these really little things in, in the grappling. Uh, one of the things that I noticed the most was that when Cyril would get up to like one knee, sort of like a turtle position, but with um, Francis having kind of like the, the standard freestyle wrestling bot, uh, top position, holding onto the, the belly and the arm that uh, Francis was stamping his knee into the calf of Cyril. And I saw that one time. I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. And then he did it four or five times throughout that fight. And I was like, okay, so that's something he trained. And um, one of the storylines at the time was that Kamara Usman was training with him. And uh, so I messaged Kamara Usman and Coach Nixick. Kamara did not answer me, but Coach Nixick did. And so I asked him a couple questions about the grappling training and uh, all that kind of stuff for the Cyril fight because that one blew me away. Just like the, the development from the first Stipe fight in Francis to what he did to Cyril just absolutely blew me away. And that was for me, I consider that the start of working on the video that I put out last week. Um, I would talk to Coach Nixick on, off and on, little questions here and there about different fighters. Puni Pagoa, I love Puni Pagoa. That was another guy that I was like messaging him back and forth. And at one point, he sent me uh, his UFC 281 coach conversation. Um, that what he had done prior, I talk about in the video that he had done prior to Pereira versus Adesanya one, where he just, I mean, and in the video, I, I shortened some of the sections, but he even 
predicted the types of takedowns that Israel was going to shoot on Alex. It didn't fit the video, so I cut those. But if you go back and then you wa- read it and then rewatch that first fight, Nixick knew that fight inside and out. And so then going into the second fight, um, I had already read that, like I said in the video, and I was I, I gave Israel no chance in the video. I keep referencing the video, but uh, these these sort of little minute things that Eric, I would ask him like these little questions, and he would say something to me, and it would only hit me a week later watching another fight. Like, wow, that's that's really potent. I don't think people really think about it this way. And as I I would I kept asking him questions about different fighters, different thoughts. I realized um, just how dense his knowledge base is for MMA. And I really think a lot of it comes from his background in football. Um, Like I had said, actually, I don't know if we were recording if this was before, but my background before I started doing MMA was I would do what I do for MMA in terms of like using data science and analytics. I did that with baseball and football. So a lot of what I'll do when I do analysis of fighters is look at um, sort of a multidisciplinary approach of why does this work? Why doesn't this work? Could you take something from baseball and apply it to MMA? And it's very obvious that that's a key tenet of what Coach Nixick does. Um, and what I realized is that, that what Nixick's entire cage control system is built upon is a lot of logic that is very comparable to defensive backs in football. Um, and you can see it with Kai Kamaka, who was a defensive back uh, when he played in high school. If you watch some of the ways that he'll do this really beautiful drop step into a round kick. So he'll be in southpaw, drop steps into orthodox, and then he'll use that rear leg and hit him right to the body because he's automatically got outside leverage in open stance because of that drop step where the opponent doesn't realize what he did. And that move is the exact same move in football when uh, the wide receiver crosses the gulf between the defensive back and them, and they open up their hips to run downfield to defend the pass. And I looked at that, and I was like, that's football. And uh, that that was a lot of, I think that was about three weeks ago. And I was like, I'm going to do a video on that. I feel like this is the perfect opportunity because it's Nixick versus Adesanya. And the more research I'm doing, the more little questions I would ask him, the more I'm like, this guy just knows Adesanya inside and out. Um, but to, to get to the, the actual question you asked, I didn't think that Strickland would win because um, a lot of, uh, in my opinion, I think that Strickland's, um, I thought it was going to be Perry, really, was going to be the problem. I thought that Adesanya would have looked at what Pereira did so well with the body jab into the lead hook and say, like, I need to play with his hands and start opening up those possibilities. And instead, after the first round, I was like, oh, no, he did not. I, he didn't. I mean, I don't want to like disparage him, but I, I don't think he prepped for that at all because he was just throwing down the pipe and getting smacked every single time with those parries. And and when he knocked him down, I was like, oh no, this is this is going to be bad. Um, but I just I, I I guess I had more faith in Israel that Israel would have come up with a little bit more of a something. And what I saw in that fight was a guy that just did not know how to deal with the very unique puzzle that Sean provides. Um, and Miguel Class did a fantastic uh, video on Twitter. I don't know if you guys have seen it, of just these very, very minute things that Sean had obviously been trained in by Nixon and company, that it was like these little minute things that Israel wants to do to you. And here's like the simplest way that Sean could implement a defense without opening himself up to greater damage and it 
this was just a coaching masterclass, in my opinion. I, I just can't get over it. And as a companion to this episode, I'll also be releasing an article titled Strickland's Unconventional Conventional Approach to Adesanya. And I'll link that in the show notes. But something I mentioned in that article that I wanted to talk about here, and that's already been mentioned, is Strickland's coach, Eric Nixick's prescience. And I know that Jason, you made a video about this already, and you can find a link to that both in my article and in the show notes for this episode. But Strickland is known as someone who doesn't listen to coaching and does what he does. But for this fight, it seemed like he actually had a game plan and listened to Nick Sick. So since you've already made the video, let me start with you, Jason. What did Nick Sick say about beating Adesanya before this fight? Okay, yeah. So what he wanted, what he was talking about is essentially that Israel has two to three exit strategies consistently. And basically what he does is he'll go, um, if, if you can, in your head, picture Adesanya with his back to the fence, right? Uh, he's either going to exit straight back and then he's going to take, that. I think it's called an L step, take one step back and then a step 90 degrees to either the left or right in order to create sort of like a 45 degree angle to attack from. And that's what Nixick talked about is that those straight backs into that L step, the opponent will go forward. Adesanya takes off to that side while they're like chasing him and then he hits them at an angle and that's really where Adesanya does his best sniping work. And so what he talked about in those articles was that you can't follow him, you have to shadow him where you know he's going one of two ways. And so with Pereira, he was talking about the left hook. He said the left hook or the right high kick. Because if you think of it with an L step, if he's taking one step back, he can go to the left or right. If he goes, uh, if we're Adesanya's perspective, if I take one step back and then step over to the right, I'm walking straight into Alex's left hook, right? And if I take a step back and I go to the left, I'm walking right into Pereira's high kick from the, with the rear leg. And so what Nixick was saying in these articles is essentially that Pereira needs to recognize that he needs to prepare, where he needs to start reading, okay, he's going to take a straight, straight step back. And then he needs to read, is he going to go to the left or right more consistently? And once he does that, then Pereira needs to start fainting to the side that he wants him to go to, whether he wanted to throw the kick or throw the left hook, and sort of funnel the direction that he wanted Israel to take so that he could find a way to, to like lead him into the punch, right? Because what a lot of what Israel does, especially in kickboxing, is he would lean against the, uh, the ropes and because of the cage being a, a solid object rather than ropes, he can't lean out over and give himself that extra space, but he's still got that muscle memory from kickboxing. So what Israel will do is back himself up a little bit too far to the cage, and he's just so fast and technical that he was able to get past those sort of like that mistake he makes consistently. But if you plan for that mistake, you can lead him. And if you watch my video, a lot of the focus was on that left hook, and you can just watch Pereira consistently gives him just enough space. Israel goes towards the hook, and Alex is already throwing it before Izzy's even in place. He's throwing to where Israel will be. And um, it, it, it's just like he wrote this all out at UFC 281 before uh, Israel versus Alex won. And it was just like if he had written it after the fact, it would have been an incredible piece of analysis just of the fight. But he wrote it before the fight even happened. And that, to me, I, that was when I was like, okay, this guy really knows what he's talking about to be able to predict to that level of detail. 
Dan, you know Eric Nixick. Tell me what makes Nixick so good as a coach and a corner because Extreme Couture has gone through a few coaches and Nixick was probably the least famous one. He wasn't a former UFC fighter or from the old Team Quest in Oregon. So how did he get to where he is and what makes him so good? Yeah, I think um, part of that, I want to say the, the, the part that I'm least experienced to say, but I'm glad Jason brought it up and uh, is, is football. And, um, you know, if you go to my timeline, I feel extra silly. Uh, aside from getting this fight wrong, I, I probably had one of the worst picks, which is pretty bad because I've had a lot of bad picks and stuff this year. But uh, I just had a terrible night. Like I got reverse sweeped on like picks and plays. And one of the last tweets on that night before I kind of uh, passed out and uh, or went out uh, for the night and whatnot um, was, uh, you'll see, it says, reason number 1,000 why football has nothing to do with MMA. <laughs> and you want to talk about things that, again, don't age well. Now, that was after the Austin Lane and Justin Toffa fight, okay? So obviously what I'm talking about is MMA's great white hope is anybody who's played football and I'm going to piss off all the football people I do with my close friends and, and few listeners of the podcast. I have to remind them this is not against it because the part of football and a- application um, that Jason is talking about is not only correct in the relevant context to Nick sick and what we're talking about, but even in my curmudgeon, you know, dislike for all things popular and uh, just <laughs> never, never fitting into the beer wing sports, America football, <laughs> which would have made my life so much easier if I just, followed that line um the thing i even 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 my 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 butt likes about football is um the offensive defensive coordinators the analytics of it um that stuff is fascinating to me i love all that stuff um so i just want to clear that up is when i say when i give little hates and jabs about football nothing i just mean that in the fact that every guy who's had a cup of coffee we treat like it's it's the next great thing, and then I, and when really Brendan Schaub is the best we've had to show for that. So can we just give it a rest? <laughs> let me let me jump in very fast to that. So Dan is entirely right. As someone that I, I think is now like the the podcast is like me being pro football, but I will say that I agree one hundred percent with what you say because most of the the holdovers, the ones that like you know that Dana has the kind of like obsession with are always defensive ends and linebackers who are undersized that are like really good in college and then they get the nfl and they're too small and what happens when you're too small in the nfl is you have two choices to make one you continue to try and play big and you get cut within a year or two or you actually learn how the the game of football works and you become a really smart player and the only fighters that are coming out of football are the former of the two so they don't fit into like what I'm I'm 100% on your side because they just they, you know there are very smart football players but they're not the ones that are coming to the UFC. UFC is the bare knuckle boxing for NFL football. Oh, that you got to title yes. that. That's that's oh, a that's podcast great. title that right there. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. A note to our listeners. If you love the Southpaw project, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. This will give you access to exclusive bonus content, like early releases of Southpaw Deep Space Nine, our fictional narrative podcast, Fighters Brew, break-free versions of our shows without interruptions like you're hearing now, bonus articles, Fighters Brew transcripts with extra content, Liberation Martial Arts Online, as well as our private chat group on Discord. You can also make one-time donations at Ko-Fi, 
or show your solidarity by wearing our swag. You can find all pertinent links at southpawpod.com. Bouncing back to bouncing back to why you're right, and just so I can give you the compliment right back and, and get us back on, get us back here, which is which is you know it, it does apply to that. He he um he really uh has taken that as far as his you know um I don't want to say al- algorithm is the right word or base of operations if you will, but it's definitely a strong theme, an applicable theme, and an effective theme. Personally, though, speaking, I can remember back in the day when Eric was just, you know, just seemed like the dude who was just like, is he like an assistant coach or something? Because he's training with the coaches all the time, like in and before the classes. He's helping out during the classes. You know, like uh, I remember just like, you know, uh, th- like I forget, like something happened in uh, Japan. It was like this is like probably going back to like when Fukushima happened or whatever. I don't know if Eric thought I had family there, but we didn't even know each other that well. And he was like, hey, man is your family all right? Like he just was like one of those, just always like trying to like, and he meant, he meant well, you know, like he was just one of those dudes though. He was just always just like very friendly, approachable. Like he, he, you would have thought he was the gym manager years before he was the gym manager. Right. So a lot of this stuff kind of makes sense as far as his personality type, being able to connect with a bunch of different types of people um, that come in in and out of a very transient place, like a gym an MMA gym, an MMA gym, in Las Vegas, right? Very transient for many different reasons, whether it's pros passing through, people struggling to pay the tuition, or, you know, people struggling to stay out of jail. Whatever the case is, you get a <laughs> bunch of different faces in a Las Vegas MMA gym. And Eric has just always had that connectivity that the thing that you can't explain, right? Um, that is one of the things I can't speak to. Um, and, 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 and I guess more qualified to speak to. I don't know because believe it or not, as far as the shop talk and stuff, um, I I'm willing to bet, especially within the last year or two. Well, I don't know. Cause sometimes me and Eric will get on the phone and we'll just kind of talk about a bunch of things, but as far as shop talk, I mean, Jason's probably had as much, if not more in the last year or two with, with, with Eric. Um, I unfortunately, I wish I had time to do like scouting stuff, whether it's like actual scouting work and stuff that I've done before that uh, Jason has done, or whether it's stuff that shouts to the, the Miguel classes of the world, right? Uh, great shout, uh, great account, great shout, great analyst there. I'm um, like, it makes me jealous of uh, you guys. Like, I wish I had time to pour into a matchup, whether it was pre or post, but w- when I have to do the, you know, the 14 fighters on a card every, every, it's about 30, 30 different profiles. I'm trying to get through every week. You got to turn the page plus all the other stuff, real life stuff, you know, that, that we all deal with granted, but with the UFC stuff, I should say, um, it makes it, it makes it very difficult. So I don't really get to get to do that as much. Right. But when I did do scouting work, a lot of it was through Eric and the gym. And, um, like I did some stuff for Roy Nelson when he fought like Antonio Bigfoot Silva or different fighters. Um, and when I would turn into these reports to Eric, despite not being a football guy and how football again relates and relates to Eric's theme. And just despite my tweets, there, 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 there is a place where it absolutely, it absolutely fits. And Jason's right. And I'll take this as a compliment. I was told that a lot of my scouting reports resembled the way NFL or uh, college, uh, not NFL college football teams would do their scouting reports. And that's stuff that Eric was more familiar with um, from high school to college level. Um, this was more his both hands-on experience. Uh, he comes from a coaching family. So these were kind of uh, his experiences. And he and he would explain to me why that was useful and, you know, kind of give me that positive reinforcement and kind of see how these things correlate. Now, as time went on and Eric got better, you know, and, you know, uh, and 
I got busier as well. So I don't even know if I would have time as much as I say, Oh, I wish I could do this and that to be, honest, I'm so busy now. I don't, I don't know if I'd have time. It'd have to be worthwhile, but, um, Eric's been more, much more capable. He doesn't need, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't need to bring in people like me for assistance anymore. Um, uh, you know, uh, officially slash unofficially, but when we do talk shop and compare notes, it is comforting to know that we have a lot of the same things. And what Jason brought up is really relevant because I picked Ninganu to beat Sirogan. And it was tough because that was one of those things where I got everything right. But again, I'm not, you know, for many reasons, um, uh, but chief amongst them, I'm sure, is that, uh, you know, oh, Eric's one of your boys. You come from that. Of course, you're going to pick Ninganu. So everything I said, it really didn't matter. But all these things that Eric is saying that uh, to Jason or Eric put in shout out again, great shout to Spencer, uh, E. Spencer Kite, one of the good dudes. Great stuff. And, yeah. Great stuff. Oh, I love those shouts in the video, by the way. Rightful shouts to that dude. Uh, but like all those things that were in his articles that you're citing to Jason, like these are the same things that like meet the notes that me and him shared. Um, and when, and it was funny, the UFC 281, I don't know if we talked uh, before. I think we had a long talk after though, because I was also one of the people who picked P Pereira and I didn't pick him by fifth round stoppage, but I did pick him by decision, which was weird because, oh, everyone's like, oh, left hook Poetan, if you're going to pick him, knockout, opportunism, power, he already beat him. Um, but a lot of the things now, I didn't lay it out quite as articulately as Eric. I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to try to hold a candle to that, but in my defense, I did lay out a lot of the same points and me and Eric have done this a lot where we will come to the same conclusions. And a lot of times it'll be post now because I'll see his notes on Spencer's and he'll see my notes published, you know, and you know, if he's curious about something, he'll reach out before. But again, we don't really do that too much. And I'm also very conscientious of this. I, again, I probably should be playing these politics closer, um, whether it's for, you know, political or job reasons, which I'm terrible at for myself. And I'm also, you know, personal note, I'm, I'm terrible at cultivating friendships because I am so non-politically wired. I am so not wired to not be awestruck. Let me take your picture for the gram when I'm in places of the extreme couture that I have been since it's heyday in 07 that I almost get two tunnel vision to where I don't even like, just like stop and like cultivate my friendships with friends in the gym. And I realize I've known these people. They've been nothing but good to me. And I've probably a big asshole. So it's probably a lot of this to my detriment granted, but then you have the things like the James Krause situation come up. And now all of a sudden, and I'm sure Eric feels the same way. I'm glad there's no shifty notes and stuff with me working in the media gambling industry and all these things. And, you know, the things that can be misconstrued, right. You know, even when, you know, it, I mean, and, and this is something that I've always been cognizant of when I was recovering from a knee injury and having to work the bike, the only bike was fitted to the big octagon. And there was, you should take getting ready for her title fight at UFC 200. And I would turn my bike the other way. Follis, uh, was Follis still alive back then? He was, yeah, Follis trusted me. Uh, Misha, you know, who, who I knew, uh, maybe even went on military trips at that point. Uh, trusted me. It didn't matter. I do not want that information. We do not need anybody thinking that I have that information. Uh, even if, you know, both parties tr trustworthy, what if somebody else sees it? It looks, you know, how it looks, you know? So, um, I don't know how much satisfying that answer is to your audience, Sam, but maybe they're, they're hoping to have more information on that, but believe it or not, people are surprised. I, I, I talk a lot of shop with Eric, but, and maybe trade some notes, but a lot of it is, is post, um, is post hand. And, um, and uh, so I'm glad that Jason brought that up because those were the notes that 
made it so that, you know, okay, you know, I want to give me credit for calling Ngannou over gone. That's fine. But all these things, you know, that Eric says, not just the cage craft, but also you'll hear him talk about things like reloading, because not only can you force and force an error, that's a two-way thing. You can also overcommit yourself to that said error when you're applying, applying said pressure. So being able to reload, being able to throw shots away, something that guys like Strickland and Ige do, right? It's not that they have a good left hook, an underrated left hook, more so Strickland. You don't hear about his left hook. Ige, not as much underrated. It's more known punch, but they set it up a similar way. They throw away that right hand because you're not always going to be cutting off that side. Sometimes you're going to be showing that to feed into the other side. And like all these languages, seeing it repeat itself, like um, Jason cited, it's for a reason. Those are breadcrumbs that you can actually go back and follow people. And it makes these results not as surprising in hindsight. Just to give a plug to our own uh, online martial arts program, I recently wrote a whole theoretical essay about the concept of loading and reloading. Nice. There you go. Just because I think it's like a linchpin. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Within the movements that you do in martial arts. I even like talked about how often, probably people aren't connecting to this, but sometimes you will see somebody, often a beginner, but sometimes even in the cage, somebody spin around. They like overcommit on a punch or a kick and they'll temporarily like turn their back on their opponent and then they'll like turn, come back around. Why? Because they're going one trip all the way around instead of just reloading back. Right. Yep. Tony Ferguson. So it's because they never habituated that habit, right. Of reloading. Right. They just, I go in my mind, I don't think I should go backwards. I should just continue in that movement until I end up back where I need to be. So it's something very minor, but it's like something that you need to explicitly say because you would think people would know that, but actually some people don't unless you tell them explicitly. So I think that's like an important aspect of coaching too. Don't assume people will just pick things up. Sometimes you just got to say the thing explicitly. And I think loading, reloading, it is something that you have to like actually name and tell people to do this and just not leave it to chance. Absolutely. I just think it's a great connecting piece to the L step that, uh, that, 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 that Jason uh, smartly brought up as far as the Izzy's retreat angles and how, how Eric kind of, strategy uh, strategizes for those it really it's it's that it's that kind of quiet connecting piece in boxing people are much more familiar i think it's more it's more used as a term of uh, bridging right bridging offense to defense it's kind of that's kind of a similar theme as far as understanding uh, the mechanics of a load and reload off whatever movements you're doing obviously more diverse because now we got kicks takedowns spins right and, and things like that but uh in boxing this term that 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 this this quiet principle that sam's referring to is usually more referred to as bridging bridging offense with defense now let's get down to brass tacks jason let me start with you what does strickland do that won him this fight and shut down adesanya in the process uh parrying i i think that he provides one of the most unique uh defensive like you know the jokes write themselves like i love the iCarly meme it's like the funny i I laugh every time if eric listens i'm sorry i don't know because it's identical it (laughs) is and that's the thing it is but um god it's such a funny photo but uh what his ability to i'm I'm actually working on a video on this right now i've been calling it the, the gaethje meta which is this this ability to um mix together punches with like attacking their high guard and then throwing kicks behind that. So you're, you're like trying to peel down their high guard, throwing a punch over the top and then kicking behind it. And you see a lot of fighters. Um, I, I think of like the Montoya 
the uh, Jonathan Martinez and Chris Gutierrez. They're two fighters that really resemble Gaethje to me, um, with a little bit less of the the punching. He's a much better puncher, I think, than those two. Um, and and Sean, he inherently kind of developed that from a boxing standpoint. He doesn't kick the same way. He uses the front kicks to like keep pushing you back, and the push kicks right. Um, but to me, it, it really it's all that he's just got a really weird defensive style and the mixture of sort of like the weird Philly shell thing with his parrying makes him really hard for fighters that like to get started. Um, one of the things that I guess I have to bring out more football. Um, if, uh, if you guys listen to Richard Sherman, talk about Sam Bradford, Sam Bradford is a quarterback formerly of the St. Louis Rams. And, uh, what Sherman said, uh, before uh, a Rams game when he was playing them, was essentially that Sam Bradford needs, if he does not like complete his first three to five passes, then he is an entirely different quarterback the rest of the game than if he makes those three to five. He needs to get that rhythm going quickly. And I think that Sean Strickland is really, really, really good against the Sam Bradfords of MMA. And what I really think the, the key takeaway I had from this fight was that Israel Adesanya is a Sam Bradford type where he needs to get a little bit of going. And then he, you know, I think. I can't remember if it was Eric that said this, but that um, everything that Israel does builds off of an initial foundation where he'll throw the jab. And if you can get the jab going, but you're doing X, Y, Z, then he's going to create a secondary thing off the jab to kind of, and then he's just building and steadily building up to something, right? It's like a, like an orchestra. He needs some kind of foothold. Yeah. And what Sean kept doing is like pulling his foot off of the foundation where it's like, no, 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 you can't do that. I'm not going to let you even start. And and Israel just essentially was in neutral the whole fight. He's throwing like basic kicks that are getting checked. And then he's trying to jab and he's getting it smacked. And he finally is like, okay, well, I'm going to try and counter a three off of the, the jab. And then gets just clocked at the end of the first. And I think at that point, Israel's like, okay, he can hit hard. And I can't overcommit to things the way that I was before. And then for the rest of the fight for me, I know that Israel won at least one round after. But it was a lot more of Israel like, trying to get a foothold and never getting it. And so I think that's really, to me, Sean's like superpower is that defensive fundamental set of, of parrying and all of that mixed with an opponent that really needs to get momentum building, right? Like Max Holloway is another one of those fighters that really gets that momentum going and then he's going downhill on you and you have to disrupt that early the way that Volkanovski did in the first fight. Um, so that that's my answer is parrying. I really think that's what it just everything's built off that let me turn it over to you dan what did you like about strickland's performance and was there anything adesanya was doing that you wanted to see more of or that he was doing well i think it was uh it's a great second question i think it i completely agree i thought it was a great way to to describe it uh the footholds and whatnot and adesanya's game uh don't disagree with that one second uh with sean i was most impressed with again i I was one of the few who was trying not to say like he, he he religiously follows. He has made improvements there, but even being one of those people, I was still really impressed with just how much improvements he made as far as the uh, cage cutting and keeping that kind of invisible invisible pressure. You know that just outside of range, Max Holloway, Jose Aldo, uh, one type of pressure where Max is actually not throwing a lot, but he's increasing the temperature of that fight in that first round at UFC two eleven in their first meeting. And Sean was keeping a lot of those things at range where he was keeping, you know, even though it's a different fighter, you've got more of a builder in Adesanya than a uh, hardwired, um, 
needs his coops to recover an athlete like an Aldo, you know, explosive athlete like an, an Aldo. Uh, but he kept that kind of invisible pressure. And when the range tax that you kind of force out at that point, like the jabs that were going to get countered or the kind of naked kicks that were easily checked or stepped out, um, his kicking defense was impressive because that was another thing, not just by the statistics. I mean, people land in the literally 99 percentile region of their kicks, but you got to be careful of stats too, because they don't count for checks. And sometimes they just get things outright wrong, whether it's the attempts or the land. So it's kind of a faulty well of information. You know, I, I trust more the kind of actual someone like, like Jason is actually going out and fishing these analytics, running it through his own. Uh, his own numbers. So be careful by taking um, uh, those like fight metric stats by value. But even then, so uh, you, you still go back and watch and Sean's not a great checker. He's not even with the, 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 the Muay Thai pass throughs that he was hitting the catch and pass throughs for the, for, for more center mass kicks um, to these slide backs and checks. Like these aren't things that Strickland um, did with a high regularity. So that impressed me and allowed the other parts of his game to shine through. Whereas Adesanya, what I was expecting more now, it's funny because a guy who comes from um, traditional martial arts and one of the few things I'll ever compliment myself on for whatever reason is I'm not an athlete in any, any sense, but I do have um, some decent hand-eye coordination. That may also be actually, I found out might be linked to some neurological formal diagnoses that I have. One of the few positives of it, I'll take it. Uh, but one of the things I would just do, especially like working more from a bladed, bladed stance, and now I work from more of a traditional kickboxing southpaw stance, is my right hand, my lead hand would do a lot of parrying work. And I would almost do a lot of uh, naturally be fighting a, out of a kind of a shell variation, right? Whether you're talking about my sport karate days or my adjusted stance now, um, you will see it come out sometimes. I think I posted some videos I was sparring my guy Oscar. And you see him throw like a combination of one, two, and then a left hook to the body. And, um, I'm out of range and I've got the shoulder up for the block and for the body hook, I actually use my right elbow and I actually meet the punch right away. And it's weird. And it's one of those weird things you're, you're constantly scolded not to do when it's like in a boxing, you know, you'll see Sean Strickland kind of meet his hands out, like almost like a karate number one or number two block, like he's doing right. And Sean Strickland definitely does not seem like a karate guy uh, or partial to their style. So I doubt he's paying homage out there. Right. But there is something about it that does work if you have that proprioception. Now, are there things that are wrong with it? Of course, there are reasons why MMA kickboxing to boxing gyms, from my experience to Sean's experience to your guys' own outside opinion, will say there's problems with that because there is. If somebody can can step in, mix it up, or an actual, you know, uh, they actually understand a little bit of sweet science in the pocket range, yeah, you are going to be uh, flummoxed and taxed, especially when you're playing with hands. Now, the thing is, I didn't expect Adesanya to go all out boxing, but as far as the hand play, and not just the hand play, because what was the hand play that uh, that Alex Pereira did? And I, I, I think I mirrored it's almost his fight with Strickland mirrors an old George Foreman fight with a, a gentleman named something Tom Gullick, but it's literally the same fight. It's a circling jab. He's circling with his left, going high, going low, and then he makes the hook. Then he gets mixed the hooks in once he gets his opponent really confused and following him. Um, but it was body work, right? And what stops pressure? You mentioned Justin Gaethje. What was it when Justin, the Eddie Alvarez said after giving Justin Gaethje his first defense, he says, you got to know what it's like to face a guy who's going to come after you. That alone, it doesn't matter if there's slouch. Everyone was, you know, commenting, oh, Justin Gaethje's Homer Simpson chin or whatever. Eddie Alvarez was like, no, I'm taking this guy serious. I don't care that I'm better schooled than him. 
when somebody comes at you, it makes you very uncomfortable. And the way to stop that is to hit someone to the body. And Adesanya, whether it was his kickboxing matches with guys like who beat him like Pereira or his MMA matches, he's always had very underrated body work. And that was something I might not have expressed this as much in my uh, analysis as a lead up, but it was definitely something I was depending on to be there. And I was really surprised of the lack of, you know, when you guys said he looked flummoxed, he just, he didn't seem to find that. I didn't hear any adjustments calling for it. And that just seemed really, really vacant. And that's something that I don't, I don't know what, what came up in your numbers, Jason. I know you have an excellent video on Adesanya and a lot of the strikes that he's thrown, but the body work just seemed to fall off a cliff for this fight, which was really surprising. You know, if I can jump in really quick, you bring up something really interesting because that, that, that was always something I took for granted with him was, was I didn't dive deep, but actually for both of them, when I did my analysis on the gulf of what Strickland defended, the thing about what I focused mainly on was his head and his legs, because he gets hit to the legs more cleanly with like, re- uh, I too hate statistics. They don't do a very good job of like, uh, like I, I have, I think it's five different things for our statistics for different you know, checks. I love your metrics, by the way. Great. Oh yeah. Yeah. I love it. It takes forever to do, but man, is it worth it when you can get that, those numbers together. But, uh, you know, uh, Strickland's body work is not so, and, and he's so upright. That feels like such a way to attack him because, you know, to, to go back to the initial question, the thing for me is, is I wanted to see more front kicks, push kicks. I wanted to see what Cyril God did to tie to Ivasa. I feel like that, in the lead up to this fight, that's what I thought Israel was going to do, was go down this route of, I'm just going to stab him in the liver over and over every time he comes at me. And then I'm going to start building off of that as the foundation, as like every time Sean takes a step towards me, he's going to be afraid that I'm going to have a toe in his liver. And then I can start to, you know, I can throw the, the question mark kick where I can like faint it kind of thing. Uh, I know that question mark kick almost became like a meme in the, the lead up, but like, there was no body work. If I'm thinking back to it, he did not. I mean, one of the main things I saw when I was working on a Nixic video was um, is, Israel would start to work on this one, that sticking one, two, where he would throw the one, hold it for a beat and then throw the two behind it. He was throwing a lot of, uh, he would throw the jab upstairs and the two downstairs, and then he would flip it where he would throw the jab low and then like an overhand right. And there was none of that. I mean, after he got stunned, I'm pretty sure most of what he was doing was throwing leg kicks and one and just jabs and twos up top. He just kind of fell apart as a, a full kickboxer. And, and, you know, one other thing that, that I, I really like, um, when I talk to fighters that are going to be facing someone that's walking them down, I love, uh, the way that, um, I, oh, the video's not out yet. I'm doing a video on Adrian Yanez talking about his fight with Rob Font. It's going to come out the week before his, uh, his next fight with Jonathan Martinez. And one of the things that um, the the kickboxing coach at uh, New England Cartel, I'm, I'm so sorry, I forgot his name. Uh, one of the things that he and I had talked about once was using uh, collar ties and that when guys are really walking towards you, that you collar tie, bring them in, throw the knee, and then you kind of shuck them off to the side so you can get yourself some space to retake the center. And after the third round, I was really like, he needs to collar tie. He really needs to make this a dirty kickboxing fight because a lot of what Sean does well is fighting from range. And if you really pull him in, you're throwing knees to the body, uppercuts, really make it dirty inside. Um, I just haven't seen people fight Sean like that. A lot of people fight Sean on the outside, and I think that just plays right into the way that he fights. Um, and, and I really wanted to see that. You know, Should they go down the rematch, that's to me what I'm going to be focusing on in my 
my breakdown is these front kicks and then dirty boxing on the inside. Because like uh, like Dan had brought up, you know, when you're reaching out like that, it's just like a steep A DC DC two. Where if you're going to reach out, okay, I can go to the body, and then you want to keep reaching, then your body's open for these these beautiful hooks that you can throw downstairs. And he just did not commit to anything, and I I really think that was a problem. So let's focus then on Adesanya, who on paper was the more technical and versatile striker, who is bigger, longer, hits harder, has a better chin and had a longer break between fights. Strickland fought two months ago and had a nasty eye poke in that fight. Adesanya had time to recover and prepare. So Dan, what do you think happened? How did Adesanya lose a fight that many saw as an easy slam dunk? So I think there's you know two uh, theories I think to address right off the top, which I don't necessarily agree with, but I do think they are worth mentioning. Uh, there's the reactionary one, which tends to happen when any when a good fighter uh, when a good fighter loses. It's almost like the only way for, especially as analysts, to kind of like fathom it. We're like, oh, they must be shot now, they must be losing it, right? Um, I will say though that there is certain, you know, not just the quiet miles that Adesanya has collectively when you incorporate his boxing and kickboxing into it, but there's also, um, you know, there's also the letdown spot whether you're the challenger, I always, I always point out in a failed title, title challenger, you'll see this even in a loss. And even if it's a dominant loss, like Dan Hardy to GSP, you almost have like a stock up, right? When you've been in a big title fight and, you know, every, everybody was, I think he was even favored to beat Condit, right? At the time. And then he goes and gets knocked out. And it's just like one of those dangerous, I always point to that. It's one of those letdown spots because you see it happen every time. We don't learn from history, Right. But you can also have a letdown spot, especially when you've won and you've kind of uh, achieved an apex of your career, if you will, right? And it sounds like a very woo-woo thing, but you know, it's it's very hindsight. Well, yeah, whenever they started to fall in hindsight, you could you could you could apply that theory and paste it on there if you want. Um, another thing is the coaching, right? And as much as we're praising Mexican, he deserves it. Um, I almost feel like, um, and again, I didn't go back to listen to what Eugene was saying word for word, even though I didn't necessarily hear a lot of answers. I didn't necessarily hear for the calls for body work. I didn't go back and re-listen and re-watch with that close eye. But I feel like Eugene Behrman is catching a lot of strays. Um, and back to my, ex- you know, just to keep that same energy, right? Back to my excuse, if you will, of, you know, we're amongst the 17 fight UFC run as, you know, as far as like not seeing upsets like this coming or maybe not giving it the upset as much credit as we should have, even if we were picking Adesanya, which is no, nothing crazy there. Right. Um, but in Behrman's case, you know, not just the UFC schedule, but what did he have six or seven fighters on this card? Right. Um, you're, they're still traveling. Granted it's from New Zealand and not from the U S it's still a travel. There's still stuff that has to deal with that. Yeah, you've got, you know, a lot of those fights are back to back. UFC's not good about that. I, I always see that. I'm like, do they not care? Like they could have easily not made this coach, you know. I understand maybe the Trevor Whitman's when it's all title fights or whatever, Rose Gaethje or whatever. But like aside from that, like they'll still do it to like undercard fighters they don't need to, just because again, everybody's like, Well, maybe the UFC is structuring it. Like, no, you are assuming that they are putting any thought or care. That is your that is your <laughs> oh, that's God. why I can tell you you're immediately wrong. <laughs> and the point is so you have to keep in mind these what 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 it's like back there being able to prepare you know uh in these small even in these air quote nicer arenas you know these confines you know oh is your guy taped up is this all these things are going on all these game plans you've got guys on big losing streaks like ogs who were some of the first people from your gym in the ufc like shane young right you've got a lot of people that you need your attention and i could actually 
you know, not that I'm saying it's right, but if Eugene would have been like, you know, come out and be like, Hey man, you know, I didn't give enough. Um, I underestimated Strickland and I didn't come with adjustments. If he says that himself, I would actually probably cut him some slack because, you know, if you look at like his whole slate that he had there. So I think those are the two things, um, being kind of criticized, if you will, that kind of, uh, you know, as, as far as Adesanya, but Man, I'm. I don't have a crystal ball. I, I. I don't know what it is. You know. I. 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 Yeah. Maybe it was. Maybe it was him underestimating Adesanya. Maybe his team did it. Maybe Adesanya did. And after that right hand, kind of like Jason said, you know, not only do we see the body work and everything that you've known with Adesanya, underrated to not underrated, fall off a cliff. But like he said, it was. He kind of just became a disjointed kickboxer. So, you know, was he was he hurt from that first shot? You know. If you love the Southpaw Project, become one of our financial supporters. It'll help us supplement the cost of running this project, the incredible time and energy we put into it seven days a week, and you'll be giving us some breathing room, not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also to expand Southpaw into other areas. We can't exist without your contributions. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at southpawpod.com. Jason, do you think Adesanya had an off night? Or did you see some flaws surface in this fight for Adesanya? I think that the flaw that Nixick talked about um, going into Pereira is still there in that he really has a tough time where he he sees the cage as kind of his, uh, I, I don't, this sounds so like demeaning, like pacifier. Like I, I can't think of, like it's like, it's like a comfort spot. Like, oh, okay, you know what? My back's to the cage. I know where I am kind of thing. And I think he gets too comfortable against the cage because a lot of his problems stem from that. And when I, uh, when I did my video on Adesanya, a lot of what I was seeing from him when I was doing like that deep data dive was that he was, um, he, you know, a lot of people are saying like he's he's being more cautious and in a sense he is but actually it's a lot of his opponents are just not attacking him like with in the second Whitaker fight his volume was way down his attempts were way down and it felt almost like like Whitaker was going to be more efficient he was trying to but like the numbers didn't really back that up and i i think that to answer your question i think that this was um I don't think it's an off night so much as I think that this is what Israel has sort of become over the last couple of years in that uh, if you, this is sort of because of a, a long form I'm working on, but I've been looking at all the different fights he's had since he became champion and overwhelmingly he is picking the fights and he's picking those fights because they are somewhat motivating to him, right? Like he fought Anderson Silva before he became champion because he wanted to fight Anderson as close to his peak as possible. Israel always mentally has this view of um, his, he views his career from the end of saying, I want to be able to say that I beat Yoel Romero, that I beat Anderson Silva, that I beat Robert Whitaker, right? And what seems to have happened as he became champion is he would start to pick these guys. And I think that that really helped him to motivate himself because then in his head, he's like, I'm fighting Anderson Silva. I can't, you know, I have to beat him because this is legacy, right? He makes every fight into a legacy fight where you get Sean O'Malley versus some dude, and it's like, this is just for a paycheck. And I think that the way that things fell apart with Drikas, I, I really do believe that he underestimated Sean, and he didn't, I think that mentally it wasn't as motivating to him, and I think he probably left some stuff on the, you know, I, I don't know, he didn't say this, but I just have this feeling that 
if I could talk to him honestly, that he would say something along the lines of like, I left some stuff on the cutting room floor, some preparation work that I just kind of, ah, I don't really need to do this one. It's Sean Strickland kind of thing. I really do think he underestimated Sean. And I think that there was a bit of an emotional letdown when Drikus was not the fight. And if you kind of look at how long it took for them to sign Sean to this fight, I think the UFC was kind of like, okay, what, what do we want to do with this? And I, I just don't think that he got that time that he seems to need to really spool himself up into, you know, getting there, getting ready for a fight like this. I, that's, you know, like, like Dan said, it's kind of woo woo. Like, I don't know what, but th- th- that was just, that was a different fighter to me. That did not look like the Israel Desanya that I know. And I think a lot of when people are doing the, you know, the reactionary, the calling it reactionary is such a great word for it because it's what it is, right? There's so much of this reactionary nature of like, it's either one of two things. One, that he dropped the ball and he's not good. Or two, he's just not as good as we thought. And it's like, or it could be that Sean won this fight and they, he really went out there with a great game plan and he out fought Israel, right? If it had been a first round stoppage, like you said, instead of like a Garbrandt versus a Cruz kind of thing, Every, that's all people would be talking about, right? It would be, oh, you know, early stoppage, blah, 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 blah. The five rounds, if people are just looking for an answer. Like, what? how do we get this so wrong? And with like Ronda, when that happens, it's like, well, we kind of saw this coming. She didn't know how to strike. But he lost in what he is an all-time great at. And that really confuses us as, as like analysts to say, like, what, what do I, you know, do I not know anything? That's some, I felt that way. Like, what, do I know what I'm talking about? Because <laughs> I, I, you know, I did an entire thing on Nixick and I spent six minutes on my preview and saying like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how Sean wins this. If it was another one of Nixick's fighters, because I think that Nixick's fighters that really fight in that system, like a Kai Kamaka, Dan Ige, if they were middleweights, I would give them much more credit. But Sean is a, is a newer person in the system. He's not, you know, the way he fights is different. I just... I looked at myself like, what, you know, I, did, I spent three weeks on this and I, I didn't see this at all coming, you know? If you saw it, you would actually be less of a reliable narrator because the people <laughs> who like nail stuff like this are the ones who get everything else wrong, right? So Yes, yeah. You just yeah. pick the, the underdog every time kind of thing. Yes. Then, yeah. Oh, yeah. I saw this coming. I knew it. That's more the people <laughs> I deal with in MMA gambling. They're the biggest geniuses and... uh there's been, you know, there's so many times where I feel like I've nailed deal details, whether I get it right or wrong. I'm like, I don't feel like I'm as genius as you guys, but uh, no, I, I completely, I completely agree with that, and that's why I definitely said it was reactionary and prefaced it that I, I don't necessarily agree with these things because it does take away. But uh, the grander point, even beyond that, because I agree with that, and you put that perfectly, how you can't give too much credence to one to the other, and that these things do happen in, in MMA. That, that that's why I base things so heavily off matchups even when i'm wrong i still feel better going off of actual data and stylistic matchups than going off of you know woo woo theory or you know really like leaning heavily into the prognostications uh, p- p- part of the job um because again at the end of the day sometimes styles do make these fights but a grander point that i think is more worth looking at that uh, while we're talking and while we're talking to somebody who actually does the information and the diving like Jason does is that it is strange with Adesanya because we are seeing not just there, you know, with, without taking away from Strickland's performance, we did see a different version of him. You can argue in this l- latest fight, you can also argue to the point of numbers that Jason ran, that we have been seeing a different version of him for this, this current back half, if you will, of his UFC career. 
And a lot of those, like in Jason's study, you know, you bring up some of the, the, the stuff is he, he, he faced a lot of southpaws, right? And, and you talk about hanging out by the cage. And I'm like, sometimes it's, sometimes it's a weird, and it's, he's not like Tyron Woodley at all. But Tyron Woodley is a fighter who we, you know, maybe I, I didn't think the highest of. And then I'm like, you know, we got to give this guy credit at a certain point. He's putting together these title defenses. Even though the style is not analyst friendly, I don't like waiting, you know, for your right hand by the hanging out by the fence. And you, and in hindsight, we saw that it, no, we were right. It wasn't a great style. It just worked because this guy was really good against southpaws, and the numbers and the results really just as limited as his style was, it fit it. And he actually got fed a disproportionate amount of southpaws in that first half. And maybe he would have fell apart anyways, but it certainly didn't have help that you have, you know, stylistic. Um, things now going the other way. Now you have more aggressive guys, guys that aren't Southpaw, guys that, you know, uh, won't be uh, as scared off as a Stephen Thompson would, right? So you see some of those parallels when you're looking at Izzy's career now as we're trying to, you know, we're kind of we're revaluing both guys and not we're trying to do it fairly, of course, and not unfairly and not reactionary. But yes, you do have to reevaluate both these fighters after what we just saw, right, folks? So when you do look at that, it, it I start to think of Ioanni and Jacek, and I feel like Izzy's going backwards, you know? Um, I, everyone's like, why did you play inside the distance out of Sanya? Not just by knockout. Is he really going to submit a guy who's a black belt in Sean Strickland? And I was like, well, you know, it's, it's rankings don't mean, mean much. And even Sean Strickland doesn't really care about his black belt for what that's worth. But secondly, you know, um, I figure Strickland's going to be maybe shooting if he gets hurt or something or trying to close into the clinch. So maybe he gets hurt and Izzy locks up a cheeky front choke. You know, I was really impressed. We haven't seen his grappling as far as in fight sample size. But just the work he's been doing with Craig Jones, it really looks like he's been really improving his grappling work. You know, say what you will about Derek Brunson, but he passed these tests early on. Say what you will about Vittori or how boring that rematch was. He's shown to pass these tests that would would scare you, right? We talk about, you know, again, why I would ask a guy like Jason like this, uh, who is really more engulfed with these numbers. But you see, you know, the leg kicks and the body work go down. And it's opposite for kickboxers. Usually they're like Ioana and Jacek where... They're still shoring up their ground game, right? So Joanna actually didn't throw kicks on purpose. She was mainly a jab, uppercut, you know, a, a, an occasional low kick when she first started. It wasn't until she got better when you start seeing Joanna really start opening up her arsenal because it makes sense. She got more confident. She passed tests like the Andrade tests. And after that, you just see her getting, even in that fight, you see her getting much more confident as she's defending the kicks. Whereas Adesanya was opposite. He comes out of the gate overachieves, blasts his way to the title, beats, you know, you know, say what you will about Rob Wilkinson, who, you know, went and, you know, even did better than what, you know, you might've graded him, you know, granted there's a weight class and some, you know, supplementation perhaps. I don't know, but I'm just saying he faced all these grappling tests from smaller to bigger to the Brunson's, the Vittori's in title fights. And instead of saying, oh, wow, well, maybe I can be a better grappler, maybe faltering there. It's almost like, and I'm not saying this is why, but again, you're trying to put, uh, trying to find some narrative to these numbers, but it's almost like he got more scared. He got more to the fence. He got more head hunty, less more like I want to throw bodies or leg kicks. Like you're going to be afraid someone's going to catch and counter that and take you down. I'm not saying that's why, but it almost feels like looking overhead. It feels like he's just retrogressing in a way. You guys tracking what I'm saying? Yes. Yes. So I have one more football metaphor. Hopefully that'll be <laughs> Please. it. No, no, they're, they're, they're great. So there's, there's a type of play in football called uh, like a hard snap. It's not really a play so much as a tactic where uh, the way that your 
especially when you're in a stadium and it's very loud, you have to say things like hot, hot hike. And when you say hike, they give you the ball. And there's a lot of people. Um, I'm a Bears fan. I'm from Chicago. So uh, the the former, thank God, uh, Aaron Rodgers, the quarterback for the, the Packers, was incredible at using a hard snap. And what he would do is he would use the tempo of what the defense thought he would, you know, he would always go hut, hut, hike. So it's a, a three beat, right? Hut, hut, hike. And then he would go hut, hut, hut. And then he wouldn't say hike. And he was trying to get the people offside so they could get a five yard. And then what he started to do is he would then hike the ball because then what you get is called a free play in football, essentially, where because they went offsides, now he can do whatever he wants. He could throw an interception. And if they, they just decline the penalty and the interceptions walked back. But what he would do is then everyone would kind of like quit on the play. He, all of his receivers knew run down the field and he'll throw it down and he would get all these touchdowns because people just quit. And it was because he was using fainting, it, you know, a, a hard snap affecting your snap count is a form of fainting, right? You're, you're fainting like you're going to snap it. One of the big things that Eugene Behrman has really brought to MMA that Luke Thomas is talking about today was essentially his, is the use of fainting to uh, really maximize what you can do as a striker. And I think one of the problems with Adesanya is that um, what Adesanya does so well that Nixick brought up was this sort of half beat where he's going to take that step back and then he's L-stepping. And when he's doing that, people follow him and then he throws back. And in his early career, a lot of the early fights you were talking about, he was so good at, at landing in like Gasolum. It's like one of the best fights where he did that. But then over time, what he started to do was he would do that sort of like hard snapping concept and then he would wait for you to react and then he would do something. So it was, it was like a three beat. I'm going to faint, read your reaction, and then I'm going to act. And if uh, I, a lot of what I want to talk about with Gaethje is that what Gaethje has figured out is a way to use fainting, but to throw behind the faint. So he's going to faint. He's not waiting for the reaction. And he's going to throw as if you reacted. And I think a lot of what is happening with Adesanya is for a long time, he was able to faint, get the reaction, and then act upon it, sort of that three beat instead of fainting and then reacting immediately. Like, I think he's going to be here. And you see it with Darren Till. Darren Till, to me, it's the exact same problem he's had. He used to do all these kicks, all these different things. And now he's become a faint to two kind of person. And a lot of what I see with Adesanya is the same, where he's like, ooh, ooh. like you can't see me right now. But like, <laughs> if you go watch uh, Whitaker versus Till, and you wa watch Whitaker talking to Till at the end, where they're just kind of like, you know, so, so stoppy starty, stoppy starty. And I just think that Adesanya needs to bite more and really just, I'm going to throw. I'm going to throw. Because in, in, in a sense, that's what Pereira did to him in that first fight and in the second fight, really, too, that Nixick was talking about is, you know, if you faint and react, then the opponent has time to react to your reaction, getting into like this inception thing, right? But like, if you just start assuming and you don't overcommit, if you're right, you knock the guy clean out. Like he, like what happened with uh, Alex and, and Izzy in the first fight. But if uh, I see a lot of that, where there's just this, he's not really committing and he's kind of waiting for the safe counter rather than planning or, or and I don't know if that makes sense, but th that's a lot of what I see is just this guy that's like not committing to the feints and the way that he needs to build off of them. Now, something I wanted to talk about uh, as far as this fight is. Israel Adesanya is known for making adaptations as the fight progresses. And one of the criticisms in this fight was that he kept coming out and he was just doing the same thing over and over. Or he was the same note fighter. And I want to zoom out a little bit because I'm not convinced that he wasn't making adjustments. I think there's a lot to be said of 
what Sean Strickland brought to the table and what he was doing to your point about parrying and other things he was doing to shut him down. But also, we didn't know this was like a bad style matchup until we saw it. And then we realized there is a stylistic problem happening here. And so Adesanya is a striker and he's having a stylistic problem with another striker. So even if he makes adaptations, it's not as big of an adaptation as changing where you're taking the fight, right? And I think this is a weakness to being solely a striker who doesn't wrestle because changing up your striking approach is ultimately a minor adaptation in MMA. A bigger adaptation would be changing where the fight takes place, right? In MMA, that is allowed. So making subtle adjustments, even if it's not working, you're still trying to make it, but it's like ultimately you're still doing the main thing, the same thing, which is striking, right? In boxing, okay, that matters more, but in MMA, when takedowns, clinching, pushing somebody up against the fence, all those things are allowed. That actually, in the grand scheme of things, if we zoom out, is actually very minuscule changes, right? And so it wasn't that he wasn't making adaptations. It's just that he was never able to make those big adaptations because of the style of fighter that he is. So what made him so good was that he was so specialized. But Jason, I wanted to ask you this. Is that specialization of being highly specialized a double-edged sword now? Oh, absolutely. I, I think that what you bring up is perfect. So I, I talked about it on uh, Patreon podcasts before, but like the main reason, aside from like doing damage, that you throw body like jabs is that you're trying to get people to drop their hands a little bit, right? And part of the reason that Barab is so successful is if you watch, he is basically, he does the same thing over and over and over again, which is he shoots blast doubles and very low. And then after he establishes how he's going to do it, he feints the blast double and then throws a power overhand right behind it. And then, so what happens is if you think about it, Sean is like reaching out for you. Okay. And if you start going underneath and throwing the body, he can't reach out anymore because he knows that he's going to get hit to the body. That is a striking adjustment, like what you're bringing up. Now, an MMA adjustment would be, I need to get his hands going even further lower, like sprawling, right? So. If I'm Adesanya at one point, like after the third round, you got to be like, all right, just shoot doubles on him. Even if he blocks them, just create that in his head so that then you can build fainting off of shoot the double and then come up top with, you know, you can do the uh, uh, hook to the body, hook to the head. One of my favorite combinations. You can go uh, faint the takedown into the overhand right Marab, uh, you know, like knee tapping, like uh, what Brian Ortega did with Korean Zombie. There's so many little things that. You know, I think that the key thing you said was the difference between a striking adjustment and an MMA adjustment. And I'm going to steal this from you, but the striking adjustment is all he was doing. He made no MMA adjustments, in my opinion. And that was really, I'm going to like change all of my previous answers. That is the problem. He did not make <laughs> MMA adjustments. I'm stealing it. It's fine. No, <laughs> no problem. No problem. That's what I, I would say that that it's a, such a great point that you know, when you view Adesanya, I almost, it's almost like tunnel vision where you're like, yeah, he should be jabbing in the body. But really, you know, we've seen with Craig Jones and Volkanovsky just how much of a difference that can make, you know, in not a very long amount of time. And I know, you know, I, when I worked on my Volkanovsky video that Adesanya is always there. And so he should be, it, it doesn't have to be like, Tony Ferguson style uh, MNRI roles, but like just do some fundamental stuff knee tapping, go for double blast doubles, shoot low singles, whatever you got to do to just make it 
right? Because a lot of the fear is getting kneed in the mouth, but Sean is a boxer, right? You know, and he doesn't really throw uppercuts. Like you should be shooting low and then using that to build your striking off of. You can't compare Volkanovsky with Adesanya because the breadth of adjustments that Volkanovsky will make is so much bigger than the breadth of adjustment. You can't even call it a breadth. Like the small segment of adjustments that Adesanya can make in a fight. Like if, if like five years ago, imagine saying that and it's like, I mean, that's very clear right now, right? But imagine like five, you know, 2019, four years ago and just saying that like, oh man. The building, you're right. He can, he can uh, adjust more and, you know, um, you know, maybe not build as creatively, but can build as just as well. Volkanovski to Adesanya, but adjusting and building are two different things. And to whatever extent Adesanya can and has used those successfully. I think what ultimately kills those things is instead of like what I was previously doing, trying to find an analog to Woodley with the Southpaw and the drop off or the analog to the kickboxing style to the drop off of Arsenal tools like Yen Jacek. Um, obviously, it's not, not identical to either, nor, 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 nor would it be. But maybe it's just even simpler than that. Maybe, you know, I'm not saying somebody shot or whatever, but there, there's different versions of being shot. Like you can't take you can't take a shot anymore like Chuck Liddell. Um, or you just don't throw because maybe, maybe, maybe back to the Woodley one a little bit too there. You were waiting for that perfect shot. We've heard that criticism and maybe that would be a better way to explain Adesanya while still encapsulating people being like, Hey, how are you guys saying that he shot? Did you just not forget that he knocked out Paeda, a talented guy who's doing well at 205, beat him three times previously. One of the most inspiring wins. You said so yourself that it was inspiring. Yes, all those things can still be true, and Adesanya can still be waiting for the perfect shot, as you know, Jason will show you in his video studies, that as great as that shot was, and I'm not, I'm not doubling back on that, but that shot was there for previous rounds and previous fights, right, Jason? You know, he, 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 you know I'm, not, I'm not trying to take away from that shot. I'm not trying to double back on it, but that was there, and perhaps it is a thing of, all these things can be correlated and answered to, you know, with his miles and experience and the achievements and the drop-offs of the psychological to physical apexes. Yeah, maybe he is getting to that stage that we've seen so much in boxing to MMA where you start sitting around and waiting for the perfect shot. And the la- last thing I want to say, that, 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 that last thing you guys said, because it was full of great stuff, was the specialties. And is that hurting being a specialization? Is that hurting Adesanya? And and yet the answer is yes in any division, but it's tricky because we have to have the context of divisions where middleweight division and really everything north of middleweight and above is the one place where you can have specializations, yes, right? And yes. you can go that you can go there for a long time until you know, you're finally taxed. And it's like, well, Chael Sonnen gave Anderson Silva his hardest fight. Well, that goes back to our matchup talk. So why it's important, folks. And in middleweight, you can become as great as Anderson Silva to the uh, thousands and thousands of Andre Muniz's of the world, where they they they, <laughs> they look like they're going to be at least a top five guy, and then all of a sudden they just get flattened out, and you're like, "What? You're supposed to be the best grappler here?" You know, it's it's one of those things. You know, your specializations. It's why a guy like Paul Craig, even though he is now a middleweight, which kind of makes sense, right? But it's why if you just know submissions at light heavyweight you can get toward the top of the divisions and have wins over title challengers and title holders like a guy like Paul Craig has. Or you can go to heavyweight and not even have a ground game and no one will find out about it because only three guys wrestle. And that numbers for <laughs> and that numbers for the guys keeps dropping down when the two most reliable guys like Curtis Blades and Sergey Spivak refuse to freaking wrestle. Um, so it, it's, I'm not trying to S on the divisions of these fighters, but we have to contextualize that 
even though these things are true, I don't know how much we can fault them for it because the divisions have traditionally facilitated the lack of growth and adjustments. You know, th- these are just these are just what it is, and we need we need to we need to remind ourselves with reminders like this to better understand that. Yes, I actually had this in my notes that we need to contextualize the divisions, and you made a lot of points that I had written down because yes, these are not deep divisions, and I can see why Chris Weidman keeps thinking he has a shot at the title. <laughs> yes, yes. It's not really wrong. <laughs> because he's looking at the rest of the division and he sees how thin it is as far as grappling, right? And to your point, this is why Paul Craig dropped down and this is why Derek Brunson is a perennial contender. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but as far as wrestlers on the come up, you have Drikas Duplessis, who isn't a great wrestler, but is good compared to everyone else in the top 15 compared to the rest of the he team, tries. right? Yeah. He tries he tries, yeah. Hard. <laughs> he, does, he tries really hard. Just the fact that he tries <laughs> makes him one of the best in the top 15, right? <laughs> then you have the possibility of Kanzat Shimaev if he ever fights at middleweight. And also you have Bo Nickel and Andre Petrovsky. So what happens to the striking specialists like Adesanya as more grapplers emerge? Jason, let me ask you that as the data guy. Um, so I have uh, a fun Hamza in my video I did on him. What you find is that if he's facing a person, with, I think it was a blue belt or higher in jujitsu. No, no, sorry, it was purple belt or higher in jujitsu. Uh, he does not shoot takedowns uh, immediately. But if he's facing anyone that is lower than a purple belt, he shoots a takedown within the first thing. It was ten seconds of every single fight. And uh, my one of like the biggest bets I've ever placed was on. Uh, uh, Gilbert Burns versus uh, Hamza to go to decision. And uh, because I was like, he's not going to shoot a takedown uh, because Hamza does not do a very good job with jujitsu. He's, he's very good at the sort of like freestyle into rear naked chokes, neck cranks, those kinds of things, uh, arm triangles, you know, the sort of like you know, uh, baby's first jujitsu kind of thing. But uh, um, he, he he's not actually very good at submission grappling. And like uh, Ikram Alaskarov, who's fantastic fighter they'll be on 204 he's a, a, a guy that it's a good wrestler and if you go watch that fight Hamza does not shoot a takedown he does one wizard kick on him but that was it um so to me it'll be actually interesting um i think that Hamza is incredibly limited as a fighter he's just so dominant at that one thing but if gilbert taught me anything it's basically that like the guy can get drawn into a firefight and against a lot of guys in in the uh, the the upper level middleweight, especially the ones coached well, like people at Extreme Couture, CKB, those things. I think that they're going to really figure out ways to draw out that firefight mentality from a Hamzat. I'm not as high on Hamzat's future uh, at middleweight as I am at welterweight. He, he just bullied people down there. I don't really know how he's going to do at middleweight, and I think he's going to strike with Paulo Costa. Uh, so that's a little, you know, ahead of time. USC 294 prediction. I think he's going to strike because of Paolo's background in jiu-jitsu. But uh, Bo Nickel is an interesting one. Um, I don't like what I've seen from his striking. I, I, I've not been a fan. He's so new to it, though. So it's like I'm not trying to, like, you know, dunk on the guy. He, he, you know, he's still learning. Uh, but I think that I would need to see a real progression in Hamzat's fight IQ and Bo Nickel's striking for me to be to start to think of this as sort of like a middleweight wrestling renaissance coming up. Um, but I, I think it's certainly possible. I just think that a lot of, a lot of headwinds for that come in the UFC's 
want for all everything middleweight and above to be striking. They really want that because it's very easy to sell that rather than, you know, Hamzat's sellable because he's going to go out there and he's going to just run through a guy, right? It's like Habib where it's like, it's, that's fun to watch, but um, they don't like wrestling. And that's like Curtis Blades, you know, it's like, okay, oops, he keeps losing. Oh no, you know, but um, so for me, that's the biggest holdup is, is uh, those two names are guys that I don't, have the most confidence in but uh yeah yeah i don't really have much more than that but that's my thoughts <laughs> and dan what do you think about this old guard of middleweight strikers which includes strickland and adesanya do you think they're in danger with some of these grapplers coming up or by the time these grapplers ever get ranked in the top five the old guard will already be retired and uh middleweight will continue to have like outside of a few people right beat thin in striking and if two of those people get injured then you have no grapplers anymore right <laughs> so do you think middleweight is still safe for strikers uh looking forward it, it, it is it is interesting i think that both answers i think that i give complete credence to um the, the granted it's only two wrestlers but here's the thing you guys are right it's not a lot of wrestlers the ufc doesn't like to promote wrestlers except for when they do and usually it's either it's just behind dominance and it's, it's a mix of dominance and all Americanness, or dominance and this, and this whole fetishization of Eastern European, you know, like, uh, <laughs> um, I, I don't know where it fits on the Joe Rogan, by the way, I love it. I can't stop thinking about it. The Joe Rogan, uh, color chart for how he, how to use the word savage or not, but there is certainly <laughs> one of those that like UFC fans and the UFC has for like anyone who has the Dagestani beard, you know, or an OB in their last name, they immediately just like, I've seen Macedonian fighters, like people like, Oh my goodness, this guy, this guy can wrestle. He's in the Caucasus. I'm like, do you know where Macedonia it? Never mind. I, but like, like, you know, you know, the level of never mind. but it's just, it's just one of those, those, those fetish things. So I could totally see them pushing Chemayev and nickel. That being said on the other side of it, um, I think that middleweight in particular, um, is still going to be the place for kickboxers. I think middleweight and light heavyweight we've seen from back from like Cyril Diabate, right? Like uh, the early days, like whenever kickboxers have come in to get their paychecks or to take their, you know, uh, to, to, to try to take, you know, either make a stunt or a real effort in the MMA, um, we, we generally see them at those divisions highest traditionally. Uh, I don't know what the reason would be for that. I'm not as well versed in the kickboxing to fill in the, uh, to kind of fill in the blanks for you on that. But I can tell you, um, anecdotally, factually, um, that that just seems to be the division it draws from. And again, with divisions from middleweight to north of it, facilitating and inviting fighters with specialties, especially if they have some athletic background and athleticism with their specialty, um, we're always going to see these guys come in. And in fact, because we had that renaissance of Adesanya and Pereira, um, we've already seen it from, you know, uh, Bulgari, Bulgari, and other fighters kind of trying to throw their hats in the ring. Um, we're seeing a kind of a, a reoccurrence of that, right? Um, so I actually don't expect that to go anywhere soon. And which is why I don't really have, uh, until the evolution of the sport as a whole catches up to these divisions, I think this dynamic has been prevalent for a reason. And at least for the next maybe five to eight years, I don't think we're going to see too much of a change. I think, I think overall, I'm hoping the game's going to get better, but we're still going to see, um, mass amount of specialties and varying success that surprise us surprises us with these specialties in these divisions i'll have to link my article about how market forces will keep athletic 
middleweights and above out of the UFC because yes. other yes. sports pay better, right? It's just simple. Yep. It's just yeah. simple yeah. like that, right? So mm-hmm. exactly. That's why the defensive ends, they're not athletic enough in the football, but they're athletic enough for UFC. And so they come over. <laughs> UFC is the BKFC. Yeah. You got to get started getting the running backs though. Those guys can hit. So they, they're the ones that have, but they're like 5'8", 230. So like they're going to have to fight at light heavyweight and be 5'8". All right. I think we've covered all the important parts of this fight. Thank you both for being on the show. Thank you. Of course, this was awesome. Jason, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me at MMAI uh, underscore analytics on Twitter. And then uh, if you want to watch my fight content at MMAIFA on YouTube. If you want to listen to my business and politics, which is like, I guess the more popular stuff I do, you can find me at uh, MMAIBA at MMAIBA on YouTube. Dan, where can people find you? Um, I, 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 the place formerly known as Twitter at Dan Tom MMA. Um, <laughs> Zitter. Yeah. And then like, uh, if you want to add underscores to the ad Don, Dan Tom MMA, you can find me on the uh, pictures app, whatever that's called. The Instagram, the kids call it. <laughs> and uh yeah it just that, that's probably much where you can find me socially of course uh do stuff on junkie action network and uh, the protect your neck podcast uh i've been uh, a little sketchy with episodes but uh just got a lot going on in life right now but that that's not going anywhere so you can find me there if you like this episode and like what we do support us on patreon or substack we also have the liberation martial arts program if you want to train with us from wherever you are you'll find lots of techniques exercises theory, pedagogy, and even political theory. You can even get a monthly training session with me, either in person or online, depending on your location. We also have Fighters Brew, which is a manga-inspired martial arts audio series, as well as Fighters Brew transcripts that include martial arts tutorials. You can find Liberation Martial Arts online, along with Fighters Brew, on Patreon and Substack. You can find Southpaw merch at our store. You can find all our links at southpawpod.com. With that said, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.